Thank you, Leslie, and thank you, Supi, for reading. Um, please keep those that passage open as we'll be going through it. <coughs> and uh, why don't you pray with me as we prepare to look at God's Word. Lord, may your Word live in us. May it bear much fruit to your glory. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, two of my favourite movies of all time are the sci-fi action films Terminator and Terminator 2. I'm not sure if how many people in this room are familiar with these particular motion pictures. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with them, the first Terminator was made in the year 1984. It's set primarily in that year. But it also envisions this awful hellish future where a computer program called Skynet has taken over. It's taken over humankind's weaponry, turned the weaponry on the human race and all but wiped them out. But there is a band of survivors, this little resistance group that forms to continue the fight to stop humanity from completely going under. And they're led by this great commander, a man named John Connor. But in a fiendish bid to rid humanity of its saviour, Skynet sends its primary weapon, the Terminator, played there by Arnold Schwarzenegger in his career-making role, back to the year 1984 to get rid of Sarah Connor before she can give birth to John Connor. But then the resistance, they learn of this plan, and so John Connor sends his best fighter, a man named Kyle Reese, back to protect Sarah from the Terminator. And the opening half hour of the movie is this race to see who's going to get to Sarah Connor first. And the Terminator does. And when the Terminator gets to Sarah Connor and locates her and has her pinned down and is about to terminate her, suddenly Kyle Reese appears out of nowhere. He disables the Terminator and momentarily puts him out of action. And while Sarah Connor is just processing this, this frightening series of events, Kyle Reese clasps a hand on her shoulder and he says to her these words. He says to her, come with me if you want to live. Come with me if you want to live. It's a great moment, a great line. And effectively, what Kyle Reese is saying in that moment is, trust me. Trust me. Trust that coming with me means life and that not coming with me means death, certain death. And so Sarah Connor does just that. She goes with Kyle Reese. And spoiler alert, it's a wise decision. Reese is good to his word. And Sarah lives. And as Mike and Simon have already said, this week we begin our new series in the Old Testament book of Joshua. And Joshua is a pivotal book, pivotal in the narrative of the Old Testament. It charts Israel's progression from uh, slave people and wilderness wanderers to a sovereign nation with their own land. But even more fundamental than that, what the events of Joshua show us, which is why we've titled our series uh, so, is God's promises in action. That is God's promises coming to fruition, coming, becoming fulfilled. You see, God had made promises to the father of the Israelite nation, a man by the name of Abraham, and you can read about them in Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 15. And these promises included that Abraham's descendants would become numerous and grow into a large people, that God would give them this particular land, 
and that as they lived in that land, they would begin to bless the world around them, ultimately the whole world. And so as we encounter this, this fledgling nation on the verge of the promised land, yes, they're not fleeing an, an imminent threat like Sarah Connor in Terminator, but they are being asked to take a significant step of faith, a step that once taken will mean future threats, future trials, a whole host of unknown things that they need to deal with. And what we find in Joshua chapter 1 is God saying to Israel, trust me, or if you will, come with me if you want to live. Can they? Should they? And it's in this way that Joshua is a profoundly relevant book for us today because it points us towards the gospel, the message about Jesus. God's fundamental call to Israel, trust me, come with me if you want to live. That remains God's fundamental call to all humankind. A call now for people to place their trust in Jesus and in what God has done for all humankind through him. And maybe that's something you're wrestling with this very morning. Whether or not you can place that trust, maybe for the first time, Maybe in an ongoing sense, you're weighing up whether it's worth it or whether it's necessary. Whether you really do need to come to God, come with God, come with Jesus if you want to live. Well, the book of Joshua, it helps us see what is involved when God calls people. And ultimately, why that's a good thing, why that is the best thing. And in this first chapter, over the course of several dialogues, we see why God can be trusted and we see how God can be trusted. And so that's how we're going to look at the passage, why God can be trusted and how God can be trusted. But just to set the scene a bit for us, the story so far, as I said, we encountered the Israelites on the, on the edge of the promised land. And as you can see from this lap, map, the promised land is that black outlined bit there but really the main dividing feature of the promised land as far as God's people are concerned and what lies ahead of them is the river Jordan that big river running down the middle and this is where God's people are in Joshua chapter 1 they're east of the Jordan they've made it into the very edge of the promised land but really until they cross the Jordan they're not really in the promised land God has promised them all that land west of the Jordan however this is actually Israel's second attempt at entering the land. The generation that left Egypt, the generation before, had failed to enter the promised land when God had brought them to this very point about 40 years earlier. But they'd failed not in attempting, but in not attempting. That is, they didn't try and fail. They didn't try and muck it up, and that's why they failed. They didn't try at all. And the Bible tells us that God judged that generation to 40 years of wilderness wandering because of their refusal to enter the land. And their refusal to enter the land demonstrated their fundamental lack of trust in God. It's like demonstrating your trust in air travel by getting on the plane. You want to fly to the United Kingdom or even just to Adelaide? You have to trust the pilot. You have to trust that the plane and all its systems are working. The very act of getting on the plane is a concrete exhibition of your trust in the whole air flight enterprise. 
And Israel had gone, as it were, down the air walk. They'd stood at the cabin doors and then just gone, nah, we can't do it. And they turned around. So this is their second chance. Here they are once again at the cabin door. Are they going to trust God? But of course that question, are they going to trust God, is also informed by another more fundamental question. Why should they trust God? Or it leads to that question. Why should they trust God? Can they? Why can God be trusted? And the answer we see here from Joshua chapter 1, the answer that's implicit in what God is saying here, is that he can be trusted because of the certainty of his promise. The certainty of his promise. That is why God can be trusted. You'll see there in the opening verses, we encounter God saying to Joshua in verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you and all the people prepare to cross over the Jordan. Now, that, I don't know about you, but that sounds a bit blunt to me. Moses is barely cold in the grave. He's just died. And God's just moving on with his plans. Why is that? Well, that's because, and we know this from life experience, life goes on. And God's purposes are bigger than any one servant of his, even one as great as Moses. And Moses was great. In a way, Moses was Israel's talisman. In, 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 their, in their sense of things, he was almost their lucky charm. With him, they had this direct mediation with God that no other people had had. And his death, Moses' death, it might have brought upon Joshua and the Israelites this sense that, oh no, God's going to abandon us now because Moses is dead. And so here we see God saying no such thing. What he was to Moses, so he will be to Joshua. He says in verse 5, I will be with you just as I was with Moses. I will not leave you or forsake you. What a great promise. This is God's solemn promise to Joshua. And he makes the same promise about giving Israel the land. That has not stopped with Moses' death. Verse 3, what does he say? I have given you every place where the sole of your foot treads, just as I promised Moses. Your territory will be from the wilderness and Lebanon to the great Euphrates River, all the land of the Hittites, and west to the Mediterranean Sea. What promises? Now these are more than just the good intentions of God. God isn't saying, I plan to give you the land all being well. You know, like a parent who might say to their kids, I plan to take you to Disneyland, all being well. That is, I want to take you to Disneyland, I intend to take you to Disneyland, but something may come up that prevents me from keeping that promise. And I think a lot of the promises that we make as people, really, most of them, if not all of them, fall broadly into this category of good intentions. Why? Because we're not ultimately in control of circumstances. But that is not the case with God. I am giving you the land. Indeed, as you'll see in verse 3, I have given you the land. I have. Before they've even set foot in the land. It's as good as yours, God says. What a promise. What does this tell us about God? What does this show us about Him? Well, it shows us that God is generous. He's giving them the land. It's a gift. that They, they don't have to do anything to earn it. But that's not what is distinct about this particular promise of God. If Mike comes up to you and says, and gives you $20, just like that, what does that show you about Mike? 
shows you that Mike's a pretty generous guy, doesn't he? But what if Mike comes up to you and says, next Sunday I'm going to give you $20. And then next Sunday comes around and sure enough, Mike produces $20 and gives it to you. What does that show you about Mike? Yes, that he's generous, but also that he's faithful, that he can be trusted to keep his promises, that his word is good. The next time Mike makes such a promise, you'll be inclined to trust it. Has God demonstrated to Israel not only his generosity, but his faithfulness? And the answer is, of course, yes. In Israel's relatively recent history, he's done that. Not only did he grow them into a large nation, just as he promised he would, he did that while they were in slavery for generation after generation in Egypt. And then he fulfilled his commitment to bring them to a land of their own by delivering them out of slavery, by doing that powerfully, by sending the plagues upon Egypt that eventually turned Pharaoh's heart, by parting miraculously the Red Sea so that his people could cross. God is with them. God has worked for them. He has kept his promises. And so now when he says, I will give you the land, they can trust that. Therefore, he says in verse 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. They can see that. Even the, the wilderness experience, God has been with them, keeping them safe, growing them in that generation, providing for them while they were in the wilderness. As they prepare to go forward, Joshua and Israel are reminded here of the certainty of God's word, the certainty of his promise. God can be trusted. That's why God can be trusted. But then how do you do that? What does that look like to put that trust into action? Well, the second thing that Joshua chapter 1 shows us is that God can be trusted by being obedient to his word. How God can be trusted is obedience to his word. And that falls, falls into like two categories or just works itself out in two ways the first is obedience to God's word of promise as we've just looked at you see there Joshua is commissioned by God to lead his people into the promised land what is Joshua's first response it's obedience Joshua relays God's message via the officers of the people to all Israel get ready to cross the land God is giving it to us it's ours he's obedient to God and what is the response of Israel? Obedience. We're not told explicitly. But there's no dissent recorded, no pushback. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, and it's a record of Israel, the Bible is not shy in showing Israel's disobedience. But here there's none recorded. I think we're to understand that they obediently ready themselves to cross the Jordan. And this obedience, it's demonstrated by Joshua's dialogues with the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and that half-tribe of Manasseh in the second half of the chapter. What's their deal? Why do they get this special interaction with Moses, uh, with Joshua? Well, historically, what had happened to them was that Moses had already given these tribes territory that Israel had already taken over. And if we, were, if we refer back to our map, this is that land east of the Jordan, the land that they had already occupied, they'd already come into. That is, these tribes didn't have to cross the Jordan to get their land, to enter their rest. They already had it. They were given it, but they were giving it on a condition. 
that when the rest of Israel went into Canaan, that they would be there with them, helping them to conquer Canaan. Indeed, that they would go ahead of their brothers and sisters to do that. And so Joshua is coming to them and saying, this is the commitment you made. This is the promise that you have received. Are you going to be obedient to it? And what is their response in verse 16? Everything you have commanded us, we will do. And everywhere you send us, we will go. We will obey you just as we obeyed Moses in everything. And may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. What great words. In fact, such is the strength of their commitment. What do they do? In, what do we see in verse 18? They invoke a curse upon anyone who disobeys. This is, this is a high watermark in the history of Israel's obedience to God. Sadly, maybe it's not all downhill from here, but it's a lot of downhill. But Joshua 1 reveals to us that God's promise, it's not, it's not dependent on human obedience. But it is, in the way that God works, bound up in human obedience. As one writer puts it quite helpfully. David Jackman writes, Unswerving and unconditional obedience to the Lord's will is the guarantee of prosperity and success. And you might hear that opening line and think, gee, that, that sounds a bit dodgy. That sounds like you've got to work to get your success. But then Jackman goes on and he says, which has nothing to do with the size, in this case, of Joshua's bank balance and everything to do with the purposes of the living God being fulfilled. Even in the obedience of his people, it's God at work. God is doing the work. That is how his faithfulness, how his plans come together. How can God be trusted? By obedience to his word of promise. And the rest of the book of Joshua, it does bear witness to Israel's commitment to God's promise. They enter the land. They obey God by obeying Joshua. And the land is theirs. But secondly, it's also obedience to God's word of instruction. Obedience to his word of instruction. God says to Joshua in verse 7, if you look with me there, Above all, be strong and very courageous, not to fight people, but what? To carefully observe the whole instruction my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left, so that you will have success wherever you go. That's Moses' word of instruction that is being referred to there. See, Moses had a unique relationship with God. He got to experience God almost face to face. He got to experience God's glory in a way that even Joshua would not go on to do. And now Moses is dead. But before he died, his last great act was God revealing to him his law, this book of instruction. And Moses wrote it down. And so now God says to Joshua and to Israel in verse 8, This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to recite it day and night so that you may carefully observe everything written in it. For then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. What's the link there between their obedience to God's word of instruction and their prosperity and success? Well, this is Israel's instruction manual moment, isn't it? You know what it's like. You go to Ikea and come back with a big piece of furniture or even a not very big piece of furniture. It doesn't matter. They're all complicated. 
and you bring it home to put it together. And what is the most important thing you need other than an Allen key? The most important instructions, that's right. You do not have the original designer of that furniture there face to face telling you how it's supposed to go together. But he or she has written down how you ought to do it. And if you follow the instructions, you will, or at least you should, end up with a properly constructed piece of beautiful Swedish design furniture. See, the law represents God's character and his vision for human flourishing, his design for life. Obedience to it gives the Israelites a blueprint for life, a blueprint for how to worship God, a blueprint for understanding God's vision for humans flourishing. And therefore, what that should look like in their daily lives. But more than that, in a post-Moses world, obedience to God's written instruction is going to be Israel's way of expressing ongoing trust in God. Ongoing trust in God. In a way, this is perhaps the pointiest end of God's call to trust me. Yes, their entering of the land, that initial act of trust, that's an expression of trusting God to deliver what he's promised. But their ongoing commitment to God's word, that would show not just that they trust what God gives them, but why. God is giving them his word that they may have life, that they may truly have life, because their life then is in him. That is, not just that Israel would have a land to enjoy, but a creator to enjoy. Not just that they would prosper physically, but that they would prosper spiritually. Those two are bound up together in the way God has made us. And by not turning from God's book of instruction, by going on to live the way that God would have them live, Israel would declare to one another and to all the people around them, all the nations around them, not only that the Lord's way is the right way, but also that there's more to life than just having a great place to live. There's more to life than just having a great place to live. There is a creator who can be known because he has revealed himself, who wants to be known. God's call not to turn to the left or to the right of what the law says, it's a command, yes, but it's more than that. It's more considerate than that. It's more, it's more loving than that. It's God's way of saying most profoundly, come with me if you want to live. This is how you have life in me and in my way of living. And I'm sure it's not lost on most of us here that we have the same book of instruction that Joshua and the Israelites have. In fact, we have a whole lot more that God has revealed. Do you realize that? Do you value that? Embrace it. Read the Bible's life-giving and life-nourishing message as often as you can. What's, what's God's character? What is he like? What has he done for me and for all of the world? How do I know? What does obedient living to him look like for his people today? He's shown us in here, in a word that we can understand. Joshua chapter 1, it's a blueprint for the whole book. Israel's conquering of the land assured by God and confirmed by Israel's obedience. God's promises in action. And the certainty of God's promise and the need for people to respond to him in trust and obedience, it does not end with Joshua and Israel. 
the experience of God's people on the verge of the promised land and their experience in it, it was a foretaste of our experience today. And from the the vantage point of the New Testament, we can see that the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises is not found in his people becoming a great earthly nation or having in this world a wonderful land of their own, but in the hope of a restored relationship with their creator, one that has been broken since birth. God was not content to leave us, if you will, in the wilderness of our rebellion to him. Instead, he has made a way for sinful humans, all people, his own creation, estranged from him. He has made a way for people to enter his rest, to be reunited with him. And we know that way, don't we? It's the death of his son, his perfect son, for the sins of the world. And having died that death, the Lord Jesus calls for us to trust his promise of salvation. He says, sticking with me means life, certain life. Rejecting me means certain death. Jesus says, come with me if you want to live. Trust me. It's as straightforward and as certain as that. How does the Apostle Paul put it in Romans chapter 10? He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. I have given you the land. You will be saved. Have you done that? Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? That is the choice that lies before you. But that is the hope that lies before you as well. It's not a vain hope that you can be right with your creator. It's not a, it's not a blind leap of faith. The cross and the empty tomb stand as our great assurances of God's completed work in bringing sinners to glory. It is finished. Jesus cried, we're told, as he gave up his spirit. So it is. Our salvation and deliverance, it's as assured as the promised land was for Israel. For those whose faith is placed in the Lord Jesus. And those of us who have placed our trust in Jesus, well, we can can testify to the great hope we have now. The spiritual rest we experience knowing that we're right with our Creator. And it's the certainty of that rest that enables us, that empowers us to live lives of obedience, of humble obedience. Of course, whatever obedience we, we have to God, it's only ever a pale imitation of Jesus' perfect trust and perfect obedience. His sinless life. His obedience to death on our behalf, even death on a cross. Now, our obedience is one of thankfulness, as it was to be for Israel thankfulness for God's gift, for his grace. And so we can strive to obey God's call to live holy lives, not to earn his favor, but because he who made us and who saved us, he is holy and we're his. And that will one day mean, that will one day mean a land of our own. When Jesus returns and ushers in the new creation, a world unspoilt by sin and rebellion. Then God will dwell with his people in his fullness. And we will finally, truly, glorify and enjoy him forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God 
of grace. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and that you have given us a way to be right with you. Thank you for your promise of salvation in Jesus' death and resurrection and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Pray that you may help us. For those of us here maybe who have not yet placed that trust, may you move in our hearts to make that step of faith. May you help those of us who are struggling with what it looks like ongoingly to trust you to continue to live lives of thankful, humble obedience and joyful uh, thankfulness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.